Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by Emily Rosamond, who is Senior Lecturer in Visual Cultures at Goldsmiths and Associate Editor of the Academic Journal Finance and Society. We will be discussing her feature in this month's issue, which is drawn from her coming book, Reputation Warfare. We also have the writer and filmmaker Juliet Jacks, who has reviewed Manifesto 14 in Pristina, and the curator and independent researcher Lucia Farinati, who reviews the current show at Chelsea Space. Let's begin with Emily Rosman's feature, which brings together a confluence of historical precedents that spark neoliberal regimes and playbooks, alongside an often dizzying interplay of the ways in which speculative cap capitalism uses and adapts technology, information, and crucially, reputations to continue to extract resources and bend time and fact. The feature examines the work of three artists, which we'll come to in more detail, but I wondered if we could begin by what led you to write this piece for us. Yep. Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm working on a book. <laughs> um, maybe fortunately, maybe unfortunately, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm sort of lost somewhere in the middle of the process at the moment. Um, but it's uh, cheerfully titled at the moment "Reputation Warfare." So it's yeah. it's definitely about the kind of looking at the fractiousness of online reputation. Um, and basically, it's sort of it started out with the premise that all of the promises about online reputation um, that were particularly possible, uh, popular in the early 2010s, like um, it will facilitate trust, uh, you know, online reputation measures will facilitate the quote unquote sharing economy, these kinds of things um, that, you know, I mean, to state the obvious, they haven't quite played out. <laughs> um, but instead, what we have is something like, um, if we look at online reputation as a financialized field. Um, and if we think of online reputation as an extension of what financial markets have been doing to societies for a while now, and particularly uh, since the 70s, um, you know, all the more so, um, then we start to see reputation volatility emerging as a kind of platform metalogic, so that um, everything from, you know, kind of political movements to influencer careers to YouTubers uh, to brands um, to, um, you know, Amazon sellers, all kinds of actors are sort of um, drawn into this very fractious world where capitalizing on reputation volatility produces new forms of inequality. So yes, thoroughly cheerful stuff. <laughs> um, and so I, in as I've been working on that, I kind of I sometimes get lost in the in the scale of of such a large project. Um, and especially since it's changed a lot as I've been writing it. So um, it's actually become weirdly a lot less about online platforms than I thought it would be at the start and a lot more about kind of performing a refusal of the terms of quantified reputation um, by trying to unpack all of the sheer complexity of social uh, valuation that is still there, that's still, um, that's still impacting the way that we read mm -hmm. reputations even as they appear more fungible, more exchangeable, more quantifiable, more measurable. Um, and so I'm looking at uh, race, gender, and reputation. I'm looking at the kind of fraught um, and very complex and layered histories that, that 
kind of impact how online platforms actually wield reputation as a, as a construct. So thinking about the, the kind of deep and, and quite varied around the world, uh, histories of consumer credit scoring, for example, also exactly. the public relations industry, um, and, uh, and kind of trying to... Um, trying to really just unpack all of that complexity. And, and I'm also looking at dreadfully cheerful events such as Gamergate um, and, uh, and Climategate as, um, you know, often uh, events that were sort of billed as like the unfortunate trashing of, of you know, a few people, yeah. uh, such as um, the, the kind of pylon uh, that that uh, female uh, professionals in the gaming industry experienced famously in 2014 in Gamergate, and um, the the trashing, the very deliberate uh, trashing of climate scientists' reputations in 2009 in Climategate, which sadly has uh, has an enormous impact um, on where we are today with climate change. Uh, I would certainly say. Um, so it's kind of it's trying to look at these events as kind of paradigmatic of a of a politics of of neoliberal reputation. Um, so, <laughs> um, working on all that, <laughs> um, I really wanted to kind of step outside of the of the large scale of the of the project a little bit and write a short article, which was enormously. Um, helpful to me and refreshing to me. Um, sometimes I find just moving into a short scale thing can just clarify, clarify the problems quite simply. So for example, suddenly I had a sort of aha moment when writing the article um, where I was like, oh, I could call this the general opinion, like Marx's yeah. general intellect yeah. as a kind of key neoliberal construct. And suddenly like, huh, that actually kind of works. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, I, I mean, I have a background in art, you know, and I'm, I'm so I'm always slightly wondering how I wandered into yeah. this world of social valuation. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of talk about artists who I think are doing a really, really interesting job of commenting on reputation, yeah. I mean, among many, many other things, of course, um, but who are perhaps not the most obvious examples we could think of off the top of our heads of artists who deal with online reputation, say, but um, who I think are really kind of have their finger on the problem um, yeah. in, in the most interesting and, and complex way. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, this diffuse nebulous consensus can build around a particular figure, reputation yeah. in this instance and how that in a way creates these dissonant moments that then fracture across time in very complex and innumerable ways. And I think yes. it's, very, it's very clear articulating some of those things. And I think oh. you structure it very well through these three works that each open up different avenues or thoughts through mm. this trajectory in a way. So let's begin with the Ben Yao work, because in a way that's yeah. where we start. And yeah. the, the sort of overthrow of uh, President Allende and, mm. and the installation of Pinochet and the sort of brutal dictatorship of that era. Do you want to talk about what that work means to you or why you, that particular yeah. spoke to you, that work, and why that, that became such a central piece for this article? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed encountering Ben Yao's work mm -hmm. at the White Chapel Open this summer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, the work is quite an interesting piece so it's it's a, a sort of 
maybe I could say deceptively simple collage of kind of um, reprinted historical photographs and, um, and articles from, uh, from the moment of the Allende coup. So we have some, um, some articles, some, some photographs uh, that were um, from before the coup uh, showing Allende, you know, fervent supporters in the streets. Um, we have, uh, you know, kind of the, the sort of moment of the coup represented. Um, and uh, and and Ben uh, has kind of juxtaposed documents that show what was known at the time about the coup mm-hmm. with what was not known at the time, but has now become clear. Um, and this is uh, since, you know, for example, the Obama administration was doing a lot of uh, declassifying of, um, of documents to do with the Chilean coup. So a lot of this stuff uh, started to become available uh, in the public view um, in the 2000s. Um, as I understand it. So, um, yeah, so we have, um, we have this kind of, um, this, this revelation of the, of the CIA uh, memos that, that describe what was going on from the perspective of the CIA. And of course, it's uh, been revealed that it was not only the CIA who was involved in uh, tampering with, uh, with Chile's um, uh, government, but also uh, Australia and the UK as well. So it's kind of a, a widespread tampering. Um, but what really struck me, um, and I, I kind of Initially, when I saw the documents, I thought a little, I felt a little bit reticent to go into them. I thought it's so, it's so easy to kind of fetishize the CIA as, as an actor here and, and paint them as the sort of evil actors that, well, I mean, maybe they kind of were, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, but reading them was really, it was absolutely remarkable, um, I thought particularly um, the way that Ben Yao has drawn our attention to the kind of the, the PR lineage that, that we see right at the heart of the CIA's intervention. You know, so they, they talk very, very clearly about, um, about how they have um, worked to uh, destroy Allende's uh, reputation before the coup, how they have set up the newspapers to be very pro Pinochet as soon as he is um, installed in power. Um, and it's it's absolutely, it's it's completely out of the sort of Edward Bernays playbook, uh, the so-called father of, of PR. Uh, now Bernays is a, a curious figure. Famously, he's Sigmund Freud's nephew. Yes. <laughs> he is, um, uh, he, you know, he's, he's kind of known to people partly through Adam Curtis's uh, Century of the Self, um, which I would say is probably still my favorite uh, Adam Curtis film. Um, But it's, uh, you know, he's he's kind of... um, he is uh, a, a, a curious figure. So he he also, um, in addition to being uh, the, the father of spin, as it were, and the father of the modern PR industry, which has had such an enormous impact on politics, I would say, um, he he really favored covert methods of um, for PR. So he would he would set people up to. Um, to spread the kind of messaging that he wanted to get out there. So uh, famously, early in his career, relatively early, he was promoting bacon <laughs> for a company. <laughs> and um, he he got he kind of prompted rather than sort of 
coming out with some bacon adverts, he prompted a bunch of doctors to come out in favor of having a good hearty breakfast. Bacon was not at all part of the American breakfast at this time. And he talked to the doctors to get them to do the messaging for him. So he's, he's kind of, He's in in some ways that, you know, and this stuff isn't kind of entirely new. I mean, this is my book starts with Shakespeare. <laughs> it starts with Othello and and the, you know, the um, the deliberate trashing of reputation that Iago is, um, sure. you know, kind of yeah. uh, orchestrating. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could have even gone back further than that, but it's it's not new, but it is sort of. It, there, there's a new way in which um, this plays out in in an age of mass media that mm-hmm. that I think is absolutely kind of at the heart of what online reputation is about. Um, and and so Ben Yao's piece, you know, in a really deceptively simple way, I think, kind of gets at that level of yeah. complexity of of the legacies of online reputation warfare, and of course saying that this is one way of interpreting the work. And of course, there are many, many others uh, that, that um, you know, other readings that could be done of this work. Um, and, and certainly uh, Yao himself is very interested in uh, Marcuse. And, you know, there's lots of other ways to see it. But this, this is at least one reading, um, is that this is a work that really kind of shows that um, reputation warfare was already clearly conceptualized and clearly rendered operational long before it became, um, you know, kind of front and center of public discourse and public life via online platforms. Um, yeah, so it's a fascinating work, I think. Yeah, and in a way, to, it then pivots to the, these very much more online technologies through Amy Clark's work. Uh, yes, which yes. It also takes up this, the molecule, this sort of, uh, is it PB? PBA. Yeah, um, BPA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which also made me think of PFAS, the other, another kind of molecule. It's also very much in the environment. But uh, so it's uh-huh. kind of a bombardment of uh, chemicals that yeah. we physically embody. And you also mentioned Preciado, which I'm sure you'll bring up. But um, yeah. so, yeah, maybe let's talk a little bit about Amy Clark's work and how that yeah, sort sure. of sits in this subject, too. Yeah. So, um, so I have sort of known Amy for. A number of years now uh, through various things such as banner repeater events um, and and uh, various artist talks and events and uh, of course just seeing her work (laughs) over the years. Um, Amy's thinking is always extremely sort of complex and layered um, and there's um, which is something that I quite like about it. Um, there's there's a kind of um, almost almost like a sort of over layering um, of of different discourses, different concerns, different interests, um, which really, as I see it anyway, they kind of lend a, a real sort of gravity to the work. Um, one thing. Um, that I kind of think of often when I when I see Amy's work is uh, Lacan's late uh, concept of the synthome, which is um, basically he kind of uh, by seminar twenty three, <laughs> uh, late in his late in his seminars, he had kind of lost faith in the. Uh, psychoanalytic relationship as as something that could cure a subject, mm-hmm. and he was instead he kind of turned to James Joyce <laughs> instead as a model of like the artist who could 
um, who could actually produce, who wrote in such a strange way, such a, a highly particular way that he was capable of kind of producing his own symptom, um, that he was capable of, um, yeah, kind of rather than being, you know, kind of passively subject to the expression of unconscious symptoms, he could actually produce a symptom or a symptom himself. And I kind of, I, I often think about uh, Amy's work that way. Uh, so there's all, there's all these, you know, kind of complex layers of, of ideas going on, but the way that they sort of emerge in the artwork is almost a, a symptom, I would say, yeah. like a kind of, um, they are an actively produced, very, you know, a, an actively produced symptom of capital that, that no one, but, Amy could produce. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and so I think, I mean, there, there's so much going on in lag, 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 that it's it's hard to discuss it in, in a short. Yeah, I, I, it, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Also, I think what's, to me, what's so symptomatic of, you know, talking about this is the yeah. ticker tape that's running across the bottom of the screen, this sort of yes. scrolling feel of like yes. the language itself. Um, and yeah. you actually quote it, then it has that similar you know, yes. lack of punctuation or the lack of content, you know, it's this kind yes. of thing. Yeah, kind of absolutely. Language. Yeah. And this is, of course, a, a collaged uh, text uh, mm. that, that Amy brings in that's sort of uh, drawing from all kinds of different, um, all kinds of different texts and authors and sources that then becomes this sort of um, breathless ticker tape yeah. set of theories of capital that kind of keep running and running um, across the screen. And I think in, to to my mind, the there's something so interesting in particular about how Amy is using the ticker tape mm -hmm. format uh, in order uh, as as, um, as a particular medium for language. You know, so that the kind of breathlessness, the punctuationlessness of these yeah. theories, kind of streaming by, just matches the medium of the ticker in you know absolutely perfectly. And of course. The idea of the ticker is um, very deeply embedded in the um, kind of technical and visual imagination of finance. So um, it was Edison, in fact, who invented uh, the stock ticker, uh, one of his oh more goodness. popular inventions, um, which, you know, initially in its early, you know, it's kind of this thing trapped in a little bell jar that had like a piece of tape that would give the market prices as they yeah. you know, came came through by telegraph uh, signals. So um, there's, you know, the, there's, and, and of course the, the digital sort of endless scroll at the bottom of the screen is a kind of evolution of that. So, um, and, and it says, I mean, this has so much about time and about the kind of, the kind of present temper, you know, the kind of presentness and the kind of temporality of, of financialized capitalism. Um, there's, I mean, you know, Amy is, of course, kind of working with, um, uh, well, a, a former derivatives trader uh, in this piece and programmers that can help her to kind of set up um, you know, as much as is possible <laughs> within within yeah. the sort of budgets that that she has. Um, you know, a kind of like a a, um, a a sort of feed in that that's similar to the kinds of screens and programs that financial traders would be using um, in order to uh, you know kind of watch the market in the most sophisticated possible way. Um, and but what one thing that I um, 
that was that that I'm kind of interested in is where the trader would have their screens, you know, sort of at desk height. This is the screens, the, the amalgam of screens are high up, kind of a bit more like a train board. So they mm-hmm. they become there's there's a subtle hint there that these could become public tools or tools for for the public to kind of analyze capital in their own way, which mm-hmm. I think is quite interesting. Um, the the traders, um, the traders screens is something that um uh analysts of, you know, kind of critical finance writers have um, certainly discussed. Uh, Robert Waldsnitzer uh, talks about them. Um, Nathaniel Takach uh, talks about the dashboarding of, of everyday life and the sort of um, the, 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 the sort of becoming ubiquitous of the dashboard as a, as a way of, of entering into, um, into daily life. Um, and, uh, yeah, so goodness, where was I going with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fascinating um, material. I think it's, it's yeah. also this sort of, there's something with Amy Clark's work as well. There's a sort of, um, effective re- emotional relationship that's also at play, I think. Yes, yes, the- absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, sentiment analysis comes into this. So traders, um, oh, yes, I remembered where I was going, now, <laughs> uh, which was around the uh, the GameStop uh, yeah. moment. This was one of the, um, you know, when when famously um, a bunch of Redditors uh, kind of decided to intervene in, um, you know, kind of basically they were trying to screw Wall Street by um, upping the stock value of GameStop, uh, which was a heavily shorted stock on Wall Street. And in other words, if they managed to get the stock price to rise, um, they could really, really screw some Wall Street uh, hedge fund um, investors and and things like that. Um, But one of the things that came into that is um, the the dashboard as a a kind of... um, this became a bit of a shorthand, you know, um, there's a Netflix documentary relatively recently, which is actually quite good, I'd have to say. I don't usually go for Netflix documentaries, but um, but they, uh, where some of the people interviewed say, well, look, you know, we have software that where we're, anal- you know, we're doing sentiment analysis and market analysis and our, our programs are worth, you know, hundreds of thousands each year, there's no way that an amateur investor could possibly keep up with that. So mm-hmm. there's a kind of, the the um, the traders dashboard becomes sort of um, a, a stand-in for inequality and, and also sometimes a warning for amateurs not to get involved <laughs> in the market. Um, yeah. And so Amy, of course, is really going against this in her, uh, in her reimagining of the dashboard and reimagining of um, markets and, and sentiment analysis. Um, and uh, and I quite like there's this um, sort of entangling of the BPA mo- molecule, which is, of course, um, uh, a molecule that has been um, widely used in plastics manufacturing for decades and is um, estimated to be present in, I think it's 90% of human bodies. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. yeah, it's sometimes, um, uh, according to some research, it's uh, shown to have some impacts on emotions in, in humans, among other things, uh, because it is um, a xenoestrogen. In other words, it's a molecule that is not estrogen, not produced by the human body, but is produced outside the human body and yet can have estrogen-like effects within the body because it's similar enough uh, to estrogen. 
So, um, so there's a kind of complex entangling of that, you know, this sort of molecular, um, you know, sort of impact of say BPA yeah. on emotions with the sentiment analysis software, which um, of course is not making any claims to be directly linked to any kind of material reality, but of course is sort of constantly weaving these um, webs of um, emotional correlation. Right. And so, um, but I'm interested in the fact that Amy is, you know, kind of searching for um, something like what I would call the general opinion. And I think also perhaps we might say the general sentiment Mm -hmm. as a kind of, as a marker, like something that could be read against the grain that could be read by all of us um, to think about how the sway of certain industries might actually break, you know? Mm. So for example, um, what happens when um, fossil fuel companies get a bad enough reputation that actually, you know, insurance companies won't back them or they can't be sort of underwritten in the same ways um, as they used to be because they have, you know, major reputational risks. So Um, and and that it might be actually reputational risk rather than, um, you know, the risk to the survival of the planet that is actually the mechanism that that um, that that sort of uh, that gets a little bit of a turn to start happening in in um, this insane moment of financial. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I say this as an a side note. I remember meeting once the PR one of the PR people for BP, and I thought I've met the devil. <laughs> the dark arts of being able to spin what is the unspinnable i think it was during the the the, uh obviously spillage in um, oh my goodness oh in the gulf wow it's Um, i'd I'd have to say i couldn't agree more and it's i mean this is so interesting to me because i mean truly this has it this has delayed my book draft so much i wrote a section on climate change and it just it broke me like it was looking at pr in you know and i was kind of like i mean bp famously um invented the concept of the carbon footprint in the mid 2000s in order to convince us the consumers that climate change is our problem and our fault and we should all watch our carbon footprint rather than blaming fossil fuel you know and of course the major fossil fuel companies understood climate change perfectly well um you know at least as far back as the 80s, uh, like early 80s in many cases, although in some cases it's even farther than that. And they covered it with millions in PR, you know? And I, I, it's one of those, I I was, one of the challenges of, of writing this book, I mean, other than just the sheer grief and rage of thinking that, you know, it's actually public relations that will be the end of the world literally um, <laughs> yeah. is because you know and I think and and I say that very seriously like I think that the public relations tactics that have been used in this industry have delayed action for a real like long enough yeah. that we're screwed you know yeah. But, um, but and of course that's not to say we have to give up or lose hope because every every, you know, Mm. micro, you know, degree really, really matters um, and and must be fought for. But um, but it's also sort of how to write about all of this 
without being a kind of like, I don't know, grumpy Habermasian about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've like Habermas and his writing on the public sphere, yeah. he he talks about the public relations industry as like this sort of awful aspect of, of the public sphere. And of course, I don't, I, I'm not a Habermasian, I don't sort of abide by Habermas's rather, um, you know, kind of privileged, white-centric, you know, male-centric kind of view yeah. of what the ideal public sphere is, and and I don't sort of, um, I certainly, do, I don't think it's useful at this stage to sort of posit an idealized um, public sphere that could possibly be separated from the commercial, um, as nice as that might be, it's simply not the world that, that we're in. Um, and so I don't want to theorize it in quite the way that Habermas does. And yet it was very interesting to come back to, you know, just ha like Habermas going, ugh, you know, public relations yeah. tanks the public sphere, which that part I do absolutely, um, kind of concur with, I'd have to say. Well, thanks so much, Emily. I'm going to have to wind it up here. I could talk to you for an hour or more, <laughs> carrying on. But unfortunately, we have to draw a close here. And I really recommend all the readers or listeners to this program to, to read your article in the November issue of our oh, Monday. Wonderful. Thank well, you thank so you much. so much for having me. <laughs> Pleasure. Okay. Okay. Now I'm joined by Peripatetic Biennale Manifesto, which this year is located in Pristina. Uh, your review locates the exhibition as a lens through which to see through Kosovo's recent past, not least through the history of the architecture in the city. And I think we can talk a lot about the buildings as well, which you pick up in through the review. I wonder if we could begin by discussing the place of Pristina. Yeah, absolutely. So the biennial was, was being held in Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo, which yeah. is Europe's youngest country. I think it declared independence in 2008. And of course, that independence is not recognized everywhere. Most mm. importantly, it's not recognized by Serbia, its immediate neighbor and historical antagonist, oppressor, uh, depending how you look at it. Uh, it's not recognized by Russia either. Yeah. But the capital, Pristina, has quite an interesting history with regards to, to Serbia, to Yugoslavia. Uh, and to the Balkan region uh, more generally. Uh, I think an important piece of history here, the Kosovo region had changed hands between the Serbian Empire and the Ottoman Empire uh, prior to the 19th century. It became part of Albania for some time. And if you go to Kosovo now, you will see the double-headed eagle of Albania all over the city, along with uh, US, British and EU flags. Um, so sort of culturally, ethnically, Albania is pretty dominant influence, but after the Second World War, Albania, which was on the Axis side after being annexed by Italy, ceded the territory to Yugoslavia. And throughout the first few decades of the Federal Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia, there were demands for, if not independence, and greater Kosovan autonomy, which are eventually granted in 1974 after a decade or so of, of quite uh, vibrant protests. And Kosovo is not given the same status as the other six federal republics within Yugoslavia, but it's given a greater degree of autonomy, which allows it its own administrative body, um, 
and sort of government, and most notably for the manifesto, allows it to embark upon a large public works program in Pristina. Mm. And the architecture that comes out of that period, I think, is quite extraordinary. So you get the Palace of Youth and Sports, which is a massive concert hall and sports arena quite close to the centre of the city. Mm-hmm. That's very near to the Grand Hotel Pristina, which is a, a huge hotel, about 20 storeys, I think, built in the city centre between 1974 and 1978, uh, which often put five stars uh, on its materials right. it was never actually a five-star hotel because it didn't have a swimming pool and there were plans to build a bridge to the palace of youth and sports uh and claim that the swimming pool there was part of the hotel <laughs> to get that five-star status but nonetheless it was um it was where any prestigious guests in christina would stay including tito mm. who had a suite there uh there was an astonishing national library that was built in i think completed in 1982 and that's one of the very few of these Yugoslav era buildings that is not just still standing, but still in um, constant use right. and has actually been looked after properly. Uh, and all of these buildings were being used as venues for manifesta, uh, along with some of the older buildings, the um, the mosque from the Ottoman period uh, mm-hmm. in the north of the city, uh, and certain newer buildings as well, university buildings and, and so forth. Brilliant. And in a way, let's then centre a little bit on the Grand Hotel, which um, you pick up in the review in the way in which it kind of leaves a certain trace or element of the history of the recent war, the Kosovo War, and how that kind of, there's still trace elements of that, or certainly many of the artists picked up on some of those kinds of, let's say, undiagnosed or unrepresented histories that have you know run through that particular building and through the streets as well maybe let's discuss some of those those works yeah i mean the grand hotel was used as the main venue for manifesto Mm -hmm. and lots of the rooms and suites in the hotel were turned into um individual exhibition rooms for for artists for installations for films and so on Uh, Just a little bit more on the history of the Grand Hotel. After 1989, it falls into relative disuse. And uh, after the uh, NATO bombing campaign in Serbia uh, that comes at the end of a a decade of the Yugoslav Wars Mm. in which Kosovo uh, had a particularly difficult time. Uh, There's quite a lot of ethnic cleansing. Um, There's basically an apartheid system introduced where Albanians were not allowed to partake Mm. in public life. Uh, after 1989, um, in the basement of the Grand Hotel, it was it was found um, that some rooms had been used as torture chambers and, and prison cells. Mm. Um, so it become a, a centre for um, for certain atrocities. Uh, nonetheless, the building is is still standing and is in semi use. I mean, that part yeah. of it have been privatised. Uh, so there's a private gym there, a right. salon, a few other things. But then parts of the building are, are more or less derelict still. So it's very strange to have this, this building that's sort of half in use and half dilapidated. Uh, and of course, it's the more dilapidated parts that manifest use as an exhibition space. Um, I mean, something that's very interesting, I think, is the, um, the top of the building, uh, 
on which um, Kosovo's most prominent contemporary artist, Petra Halilash, has uh, used to, to make a statement. Um, Halilash was the first artist to represent Kosovo at Venice in 2013. Uh, so he gets the most prominent space at mm. the hotel and he's rearranged the signage uh, on the top, so it reads in Albanian, when the sun goes away, we paint the sky. Uh, Halilaj said this was taken from an adolescent poem, which he found. And this statement of defiant optimism uh, obviously links back to, to the war, not least because the um, the poem that Halilaj found, I think was in the early 2000s. So very much in the wake of, um, of this conflict. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting that he has put this optimistic statement on the roof of this building, which in some ways represents the failed mm. modernist dreams of the Yugoslav period. And of course, has this um, this this additional resonance with the um, with the horrors of the uh, the war. In yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite a powerful work in a way, and it's illuminated. Talk us through the kind of the the layers as well in the building. So through the building itself, there's numerous. Floors, were they, have they been gutted at the rooms themselves or are they, are they just open expanses now or are they still exhibitions running through various hotel rooms? Or Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, each floor has a sort of, um, how would I describe it, a kind of reception area, an open space. And those are pretty much all used as gallery spaces. Mm -hmm. So those those open spaces will have several artists with installations or paintings or drawings or projections or film works in them and guides to them and they feel almost like conventional gallery spaces right. and then plenty of the individual hotel rooms have single works in them okay um often film works in particular yeah, I mean, I thought Manifesto used the architecture and the history of Pristina incredibly effectively, and apparently this mm. was done in constant consultation with, with local artists who had been arguing for years that a lot of the dilapidated Yugoslav buildings and modernist spaces in Pristina should be put to a cultural use. So some of the more effective uses of, of these spaces, uh, it was a Turkish artist called Sevdet Erek, who had an installation at this huge factory, uh, the Brutalist factory, that published a newspaper called Relintia, which was Yugoslavia's first Albanian language newspaper, I think, first printed in the 1970s. Uh, the UN administration that was present in the city closed the building in 2002. Um, Eric uses part of the space, not all of the space is, is usable, but part of the space that is still safe uh, eric sets up a projection of relindia's front pages onto uh onto a screen on a loop uh, but there's also a grinding ambient soundtrack that reverberates around the space that both sort of highlights the emptiness of the space somehow it, it you know it really reminds you of how huge this space is and the the, the sense of the sound echoing around the room mm -hmm. brings that home to you but it does also suggest a future use as a concert um, and I hope this is something that that can be done with with some of these buildings. I mean, I did did see a concert in the Palace of Youth and Sports, a Serbian Albanian band singing in English, and you know this this space is basically being used as a car park at the moment, which is yeah. you know, tragic tragic waste of this really 
astonishing building of which people in Pristina are, are quite rightly uh, still very proud. Um, and in both of these cases, I hope the buildings can be saved. Um, I mean, one other interesting space to highlight was the old brick factory, which was opened in the late 1940s or 1950s, and Pristina was was a centre of, of um, construction uh, oh, yeah. production and brick brick production in in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and a group called Raum Labour Berlin uh, had made some designs for this factory um, where some adult education could take place, cultural events, and so forth. Uh, presented them alongside murals, documenting the post-war history and the experience of some of its workers, and events are already being staged there. And um, as a result, um, this building was repurchased from the privatisation agency of Kosovo, which the uh, US and the European Union set up after coming to the city in the um, 2000s. Uh, and hopefully can be brought back to the municipality and made into spaces that Kosovan artists and young people could use. I mean, there's a particular um, poignancy to this, importance to this, because it's very, very hard for Kosovans to get visas to travel mm. almost anywhere in Europe. So it's particularly imperative for them to you know, have a cultural expression and to set up their own spaces and sure. scenes yeah. uh, in Pristina. Uh, and I think these, these buildings are the most obvious path towards doing that. The review kind of points that there's very little infrastructure, you know, there's not many exhibition spaces in the city. So I'm just interested if you could say, did you feel like it was growing or where is the, how is this exhibition connecting to those kinds of stories or lives that are in the city? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And the most obvious point is around the National Gallery uh, and the university, hmm. in particular university spaces and the National Gallery were both also used for exhibitions and the the university was the second largest exhibition space after the, the Grand Hotel Pristina. So, so the local art scene runs largely through the university, as far as I could tell. Right. Um, I mean, Pristina is a capital, but it's not a large city. Mm. And that's mm. important to remember. I, the population is, I think, less than half a million. Right. Um, so by European capital city standards, it's, it's mm. not huge. Um, so so the artists yeah. there need more spaces really and and hence calling for these yugoslav spaces to be good okay thanks juliet that was brilliant um right. let's cool. let's leave it there for that for there i'm now joined by lucia farinati who discusses the, the exhibition from the volcano to the sea part two the feminist group the nemesiaka in 1970s and 1980s naples which is currently on show at Chelsea Space in London until the 2nd of December. Uh, Lucia, um, you've seen the show and reviewed it for us in the current issue of Art Monthly. Um, I wondered if you could begin by saying how you first came across this set of work, these films and so on that they've made as this organisation. Yeah, sure. That's Thank great. you for uh, inviting me here um, to discuss this show. Well, I met uh, the curator, Giulia Damiani, in a feminist reading group and uh, and I... and uh, and I knew she was doing research on, on this uh, group. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when uh, Armand invited me to review the show, I, I immediately responded uh, positively as I knew a little bit about uh, the context. Um, and so there is my own interest uh, in uh, feminism and also 
uh, I would say the intersection between art and feminism, uh, which I think this show address uh, mm. um, quite well. And so, yes, this is how I, I came across uh, this, this work. And the show itself comprises a particular timescale from the 1970s to the 1980s. Can you say a little bit about the curatorial decision that's gone in there? I mean, were the works, in terms of the works that are included, were there many works that have been excluded from this show? And, and what kind of curatorial work decisions have been made? I think Julia, I mean, this is part of uh, a long research. She mm -hmm. did, I think, over seven years. So it became a PhD. Um, and then also her involvement uh, with the collective. Uh, she had the possibility to, to meet uh, um, one of the members, and um, Teresa Manjacapra, the, the sister of Lina Manjacapra, uh, who uh, established the collective in, in 1970. In terms of the, um, this is part of, uh, her PhD and a fellowship that she did uh, in uh, in Amsterdam as part of the If I Can Dance, I Don't Want to Be Part of Your Revolution um, uh, program. And, and so this show in London, the second part of this uh, project, the first show was actually in Amsterdam. And, and that was very much um, on... Uh, um, the group, how is, it was established, um, and also some of the, the performances. Here in London, she decided to focus particularly on not just simply in the um, poetry action and the performance, but also in, in the film, because that film section is very important and is, as a, hasn't been seen um, at all. And so both shows uh, are archival shows. So they are show based uh, um, around uh, materials. Uh, so ephemera from the archive, including posters, letters, photographs, but also props uh, from uh, performances, um, costumes, um, and, uh, and I think an important role of Julia has been to translate uh, part of this document because, of course, the Lili Mezier is a group of uh, Italian women. Um, and, uh, um, and so in the process of rediscovering this group, uh, this translation uh, is very important. And, and I know that Julia also did a series of performances uh, from okay. Through the, through the archive. So, but that is part of our own practice. But what uh, the visitor will see at the Chelsea is an archival show. The Chelsea space is a small space. It's basically one, one mm. room, very small, with a huge window. So the, the, the option, there are not so many, but I think uh, the curator did quite well in inhabiting the space uh, and creating this kind of archival show, which has a, a bit of resonance with, with the tactility uh, mm. of the work that people will encounter. Um, yeah. And so, yes, the selection is 1978, 1980s. So around uh, the film festival um, in Sorrento, uh, the film festival in Sorrento was an already established uh, film festival. Mm. But Lina Manjacapra 
uh, and the Nemesiak decided to curate a section on women films. So it was one of the first uh, feminist um, uh, film festivals. And, and that was very, very important. Uh, yeah. So let's maybe talk a little bit about the context in which this, organ this group sort of arrived. So we're talking 1970s Naples and they become, they start making films, performances and so on. And they lean or they kind of, let's say riff or move through kind of Greek theory or Greek writings and Greek. But let's talk a little bit about your interpretation of that and what kind of, yeah, what, how they bring all that together through their practice, which spans, you know, this, sure. this show. So Lina Manjakapa studied philosophy in Rome. Um, and then in, at the end of the 60s, she moved to Naples. And in an interview, she said that uh, the struggle in 1968 was uh, take philosophy, bring philosophy outside the academia and, and try to interact with the, uh, you know, uh, the people yeah. in the street, with the fishermen in, in Naples, in the suburbia. And so the, her program was very much to take, uh, you know, cultural side and said, and also you have to think about the 68 was extremely politicized life. So discourse, uh, political speech was everywhere and very heavily Marxist sure. in those who yeah. do it. So Lina Manjakapri said in this interview uh, that uh, um, because everything was politics, we sort of everything have to be art. So mm. as a woman, it, it, it started as a kind of... Uh, a consciousness raising group, uh, as we know, the second wave feminism uh, was very important for the um, development of this small uh, women only group, uh, the, the consciousness raising group. But the Lenziake, they develop a specific practice which uh, incorporate um, body action and and film and and poetry. So it's it's, it's a very it's very distinct way practice in which they 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 they, they gather together and address issue of uh, um you know uh, oppression and, and patriarchy and, yeah. and in particular their name lenemesia case after uh, a greek uh, um a greek uh, myth uh, yeah. figure the, the 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 goddess of revenge against arrogance and uh, Elena Majakapra was uh, very interested in, in the myth, in the Greek myth, because uh, you have to remember that Naples, the area of Naples, was uh, uh, originally a Greek colony. And, mm -hmm. and above all, the, the suburbia of Naples uh, um, and the, the city of uh, Kumae was the uh, antique Greek city of uh, the Sibyl. At the Kumana Sibyl. Mm. And, and so we are going back to matriarchy. Mm. So by going back to the play, to the site, to this archaeological site, because that now as of course archaeological site, the Nemexias is trying to reappropriate uh, those sites uh, and and address issue of, of also ec ec ecology because a lot of the site has been ruined by industry, mm. by uh, digging out, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, precious places and etc. So there was a kind of maneuver there, on one hand, to uh, 
reflects on the position of the woman uh, and, 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 and find the strategies, which was in a way far away from the, uh, the institutionalized politics. Uh, and the other uh, way was also a form of uh, environmental uh, activism because mm. all those action, all those performances and film, they are uh, located in those sites. So, and that is a very unique and distinct uh, way to frame uh, that, that practice. Um, yes, uh, so the idea was not so much uh, to do uh, uh, archaeological studies. She really said this is not a, 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 an archaeological documentary what we do, what we film us in these places. Is more a, a, what she said, an excavation in the self, that, which mm. was very much in the line of the consciousness raising, of uh, producing an analysis, a collective analysis of the condition of the woman and and their particular um, methodology was not that of sitting down in a room and going around and speak about the problem, the, the, the issue, and make a collective analysis. Their, their methodology was the so-called psycho-fable. So right. this enactment of this uh, fable, uh, which was uh, Back, referring back to the myth of the Sibyl or the siren or Cinderella, there is a production which is after Cinderella. So taking this fable and reverse it and and in a way address what the the issue are are at stake. And that, so that was the the the, form, the performance of the creativity was a form of emancipation for them. Uh, was not. A form of, of theater or, or theat theatrical representation was politics. So creativity was meant to be uh, the most uh, radical and subversive things they yeah. could do in that period. Yeah. And does the exhibition then chronicle the reactions of, of the time? I mean, do we hear or do we see the kind of the ways in which this work? I don't know so much about that um, because in, in the show there is not so much uh, press um, or press cutting from the period. The, the show is really focused on the material, the archive, their manifestos um, and uh, the, the letters or the article right. that Capra wrote. Uh, but maybe it's important to, to say that um, uh, we are in Naples, so I, and although we are still in Italy, we're still in Europe. I, uh, I think we can easily associate a South Italy with the global South for the condition of the the, the South has been always, you know, poor, uh, never had a kind of, uh, uh, you know, good uh, uh, political, uh, um, environmental politics and stuff. So. Um, so I, I don't know the reaction, but it seems that, uh, of course, in the music, as an Italian, I, I was, I was, I didn't know about that. It's, it's, it's a oh, very right. forgotten history. So I think it's quite interesting how, through the, an art space, you get to know a, a very important chapter of, uh, you know, feminism um, from that period, because as we know, it's, it's, it's so fragile and and completely. And, that's fascinating to learn. So there's never been this kind of exhibition in Italy. So they've never had 
this kind of represent you know this a show of their work there no I, no yeah. eventually you know, Manja Capre, uh, she she got a prize at the, at the venice uh, film festival mm-hmm. at some point uh but um uh there were 60 women involved so yeah. a lot of women they were really <laughs> and so there was a lot of movement a lot of uh, action there and and somehow um yeah this exhibition show how how was it very important that mm. the, the movement um and um brilliant i i think it's it's certainly a well worth show a great show and i'm glad we we reviewed it um lucia thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to to speak to us about this exhibition um I, I really recommend it and recommend listeners to read the review and see the show if they can um, many thanks again Lucia for joining thank you